Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of Conversations Worth Having. Today's guest is my brother, Curtis Gabriel. He's also a professional hockey player, and we go pretty in-depth into that. We talk about what it's like to fight in front of 15,000 people, what it's like to score an NHL goal, what it's like to get drafted, along with all the pitfalls that accompany being a professional athlete. We also talk about work ethic and the mindset required to set a lofty goal and to go and achieve it. And then we also talk about mental health and grief and how it affects different people differently. I hope that you, like me, find that this conversation was worth having. Enjoy. In other words, that the discussion about what is good, what is beautiful, what is noble, what is pure and what is true could always go on. Why is that important? Why would I like to do that? Because that's the only conversation worth having. All right, we are on episode two. Welcome on, bro. How's it going? Pretty good, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, I thought you and Jonathan did a heck of a job on your first one. Uh, I think I've been spreading around everywhere to anybody who wants to listen. I think anybody, any age can take something away from that. I got a lot from it. I think it's something I can listen to once a week, once every two weeks, just as little reminders. Uh, so really excited to be on the second one. Hopefully can live up to the hype of the first one. <laughs> Appreciate it, bro. I feel like this conversation is definitely a, a long time coming. So I thought we, we'd start in a really, really interesting place because I, I wanted just to ask you a question about an, an experience that you've had that pretty much only a really a small percentage of the population ever has experienced it. So I, I want to, so for context, for, for people that might not know, you know, you, you play in the NHL, you've had quite a number of fights. How does it feel to have 15 plus thousand people standing on their feet? There is cameras in front of you broadcasted to potentially hundreds of thousands, if not more people. And it's just mano a mano, you and a guy that wants to take your head off how does that feel? Take us in your brain during that. Yeah, obviously it's not a situation most people find themselves in. Um, I guess MMA firefighters are the top and uh, lacrosse fights and hockey fights are next. So I guess it's modern day gladiators. Um, guys have died doing mixed martial arts. Guys have died in hockey fights hitting their heads on the ice. So it's definitely an element of danger. And um, Never got in fights growing up off the ice and all of a sudden, boom, you're playing pro hockey and fighting in the NHL and for all those people like you said it's it's a crazy feeling um as I, I've, I've said to people before it's it's a lot quieter than you think it is it's like you said mono a mono uh I don't really hear much everything kind of drowns out and you're in that fight or flight mode the adrenaline's going through you only really feel him and the other guy or you and the other guy and it's it's really you guys just battling it out and you feel your punches hitting his head and his punches hitting your head. And other than that, there's just breathing and maybe at the end of the fight, uh, I'm done or something like that, but it's eerily quiet. And uh, once you're kind of, once it's kind of over that adrenaline rush peaks and you're just kind of happy to be going to the box and you're like, Holy cow. Like it's such a relief. I, I bet. And I, I'm sure. So I looked online, you have over a hundred fights that are, are on, are on record and I imagine there was at least a handful of nights where you might have been tired, had a bad night's sleep. But I imagine as soon as the whistle goes and the, the, the gloves are dropped, that that all becomes completely uh, nullified. Yeah, it's a 
lot of guys talk about how you get kind of nervous before. Um, I've always found if I'm playing well, I'm, I'm much more <laughs> accepting of the fight coming my way. And if things aren't maybe going as well, I'm a little more hesitant. But um, yeah, regardless of uh, anything in your personal life or in the game, it's when that happens, it's you guys are trying to hurt each other. So everything else fades away real quick. And um, when it's over, it's a hell of a release of energy. And to be sitting in the box, knowing that, uh, you know, you're not dead. You're still good. You know, hopefully you didn't embarrass yourself. Hopefully you did well in the fight. Glad it's over. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. And one of those times in which you were sitting in, in the box after a fight was actually one of the fights of the year in the NHL season last year. And it was when you were in Edmonton with New Jersey and you fought Milan Lucic, who, you know, uh, has been one of your, you know, heroes as you grew up in, in the hockey world. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you had him on like a screensaver of yours or something at some point, no? Yeah, so uh, for people who are listening who don't know a lot about hockey, it's the guy that I looked up to my whole life. He's an extremely accomplished, huge guy, could score, could hit, could fight, could do it all. And I always looked up to him and tried to model my game after him and just the way he came up. So lining up uh, for the first time playing him, I actually ended up fighting him. I fought another guy on his team. So the second time around, I knew uh, when he was on the fourth line and we're going to be playing against each other a lot. I knew that this was my chance. And um, first shift of the game, we went out there, um, tried to get it going with him three different times. And then finally on the third time, uh, he obliged me. And um, yeah, kind of like I said, it fades away. Uh, all of a sudden, it's just me and him and not, nobody else is there. And I'm trying to shake my gloves off because I couldn't get him off quick. And he's already throwing punches. So I'm kind of freaking out to start. But um, have a long fight, uh, last of a minute. I was probably never been so tired in my life. Um, when I went back to the box, you could there's a video of me in the box just sticking my tongue out and bleeding. It's just like my body was in full and utter shock. Like it was the craziest, craziest feeling I've ever had in my life. And then sitting down doing assessment damage, like I, I did a good job. This, this could be a huge moment for me, just fighting my idol. Like, coolest moment ever yeah i feel like there's a lot of people that you know dream of of meeting their idol not too many people dream of, of of fighting their idol i mean i think like the equivalent i mean i'm doing a podcast here it'd be like if i uh, went and did a, a podcast with joe rogan or or tim ferris like that is quite literally quite literally the the equivalent and if i understand correctly you had a little bit of a dialogue with them there in the in the bench or sorry in the penalty box after that how was that yeah, so after we kind of caught her breath a little bit, and I kind of looked over and said, thanks so much for the fight, man, and trying to stick up here in the NHL, obviously. Um, he said, hey, great job, and I love that you're trying to keep that role going. It used to be back in the day I'd have a bad first period, or, and I'd come out and just fight somebody just to get myself going. He's like, I can't find anybody to do that with anymore. It's so few and far between, so that was cool. Um, and then basically just had a little kind of, you know, bromance, I guess, going where I was just like, you know, uh, followed your career, man. You're, you're my idol. Like, always wanted to fight you. Um, telling him, like, I knew as much about him as he did. Like, I know all the, read all the articles and everything. So it was a really cool moment for me to kind of be respected by someone, like, in a, in a, in a way as a peer, someone I looked up to so much and have talked to so about so much and saying he was my idol. So um, great exchange that leaving that box, I felt uh, pretty confident, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. And, I mean, you, you, just doing what you do puts you in such an, an elite company where I think I saw a statistic where something along the lines of one in every 10,000 minor hockey players in Ontario makes it to, to junior. And then whatever fraction of that make, even gets drafted and then whatever fraction of that 
even even plays. So I think it was yeah, it was 2013, and the the announcer in, in at the at the arena in New Jersey says, and with the 81st pick in the 2013 NHL draft, the Minnesota Wild select from the Owen Sound Attack, Curtis Gabriel. What is that like? Yeah, that was. That was crazy. I mean, I think I knew it was me as soon as they got the first O syllable out of Owen Sound. Uh, I just I had a feeling it was going to be me. And obviously, you remember that well because you were there with mom and uh, stepdad and grandparents, our grandpa, and um, and our good friend Mark. So for not for a guy not getting drafted in the OHL draft, uh, making it as a free agent um, to be to be drafted in the NHL, um, you know, it was, I was floated down those steps on the way down. You know, you go down and meet the table of the guys that, of the team that just drafted you. And I was yeah. just floating down those steps. Uh, and mom was crying. Like it, I just never thought in a million years that I would be getting drafted in the NHL, not getting drafted in the OHL in my third eligible draft year. So I'd have been passed over in two separate drafts. Yeah. So what a crazy, yeah. crazy ride that was. Yeah. I, I was there and I just, it, it just seemed so like surreal. It was like, wait, like they just announced his name. Like, is this actually happening right now? And that actually, that actually reminds me, I have to thank you because I have had, in, in the same way you've had so many unique experiences doing what you do, by me being the, the tag along, I've had quite a, few, quite a few unique experiences as well. I mean, that morning of the draft, I think it was in uh, New York City, there, we, we got invited to some breakfast thing that we were there and we were sitting right beside the, the, the first two overall picks, Nathan McKinnon and Seth Jones, TSN cameras are everywhere, but it's like a pretty much a private event. Um, the, the, one, the one that's always stuck out to me as the craziest was when, when you were up playing with Minnesota and I was you know, somewhere in the family area or something like that and, and Zach Parise walks by. And if you don't immediately know who Zach Parise is, you've he's made you feel an emotion before he was the guy where if you remember Sidney Crosby the golden goal 2010 Vancouver Olympics the Americans scored with only about you know 10 to 15 seconds left and it was Zach Parise and he was one guy that collectively made a nation swear all at once everyone and their grandma I remember I was this is how crazy it was so I was we were we watched that at a shoeless Joe's with your with your triple a team the year after you didn't get drafted even into the ohl and then we were on the stand on chairs freaking out over that and then the same guy that we just saw made 30 million people swear at once he's now your teammate and you're at dinners having conversations with him how do you kind of reconcile those like worlds how does that work i mean i think something you got to wrap your head around i think the guys like you said like those guys who go one two they're, they get into it at such a young age at 18, which I mean, it's sure a culture shock, shock then, but they're kind of, they know that they're kind of going on the trajectory of life. And for someone like me who did not expect to be there at all at certain points in my life, wasn't even on my radar to be, you know, he walks by us after the game and you're just like, yeah, it's like, it's up Z. And you're just like, that's, that's crazy. It's like, <laughs> same thing happened to me. I had to like sit there and be like, get used to seeing these guys that I'd seen on TV that I you know, poured over their stats and everything about them. You know, Danny Heatley was at my first training camp. Like yeah. that guy's freaking like a legend for everything. So yeah, something you have to wrap your head around to kind of start feeling like you belong there. You kind of got to get through that first like in shock moment. And 
then from there on, it's like, all right, well, I either got to, I'm either going to not play well, or I got to find some confidence here and get back to know that I can, I can be one of these guys out there and uh, be, be one of those guys hopefully one day. For sure. And that, that reminds me because you brought up kind of the idea that you weren't supposed to make it. You were not supposed to get drafted and play in the NHL and be a professional hockey player. You didn't play AAA, you know, the whole way growing up. And actually this, this reminded me of something. So as you know, Peyton Manning, football player, um, you, you know, famous NFL quarterback. He was my favorite growing up. And his brother, Eli Manning, he also played in the NFL. But they actually had a third brother. And this was well before Curtis was like being professional was even in the realm of possibility. And I remember thinking to myself, this third brother where he has both of his brothers playing in the, in the NFL, he must be so jealous. And I was thinking, he just must be so jealous. And that I just remember, I remember having the stark realization that that couldn't be any further from the truth when it came down to it. And I think there were just two things that I fundamentally underestimated. One, maybe most important, but I want to kind of do it in the sequential order and you'll see why. Number one was just how much love and gratitude I was to just, of course, see you be so successful. I couldn't believe it. I was so happy. But number two, I have peeked behind the curtain and I have seen the disgusting, sickening work ethic that you have put in to the, to the levels beyond regular people's comprehension. I'm, I'm a pretty competitive person. I can tap into a dark place, but I've never seen anyone really go into it like you. So just for a little bit of context here, everyone, you know, you've probably had a good workout where you're doing a pull up or you're doing a rep or something and you were really in the zone and you just went for that last rep and you, but, but sometimes most of the time you're like, oh, I'm not gonna go for it. You don't. I swear to God, Curtis does it virtually I mean, everyone has exceptions but he does it almost every goddamn time and it's actually kind of i don't think you recognize how insane that is like how did you how do you tap into that dark place like you break down your work ethic i don't know uh yeah i guess it I guess it starts i i don't know i don't know where it comes from it that way i guess mom you know our mom showed us what hard work was when she was a single parent for a while there and she put sacrifices to drive me to the late night practices and till 12 o'clock at night and mark them then coming back and doing doing you know going waking up at six and doing it all over again so I don't know I think it starts with her and grandpa and her grandparents but um, I think it just clicked for me when I realized what I wanted to do and knew that I had somewhat of a chance or at least a sliver of a chance so I think working out shout out to Randy Smith Body Smith and Stouffville the gym um, probably where I built my my work ethic uh, it had a kind of a lot of brutal brutal workouts that were maybe more designed to push you mentally and when it was super hot and too hot maybe to run we'd be out there running and uh, there's no AC in the gym the hangar doors are open it's like never back down if you ever seen that movie but just a straight yeah. workout gym uh, with weights but I think that's where it was born I mean uh, doing those runs uh, getting chirped for running too hard by other guys in the group. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, like, why are you getting mad at me for running harder? Just like, I, I, I want to beat you. Sure. I'm a competitive person, but like at the yeah. same point, like I'm racing against myself. If I have no one that's going to run up and keep up with me, I'm going to push myself. And I remember training Randy Smith and like, don't listen to those freaking guys. He's dead in front of them. Like, who cares? Go run, go do your, you're pushing it, man. Do whatever you got to do. Um, so I think that's where it was born and through that relationship with him, it, uh, yeah, pushing through those hard workouts when it was that hot, when he didn't want to do it. And I really had was nobody in hockey. I think that's what 
that's that's what kind of where it was born. Yeah. And I distinctly remember one of those stories when you were training there where it was you and, you know, you weren't even playing junior hockey at the time and you're with a whole bunch of junior people, high level hockey players, way higher level than you training really hard. And you would go to a field and you'd have to do 16, 16 full field sprints as hard as you can with only 30 seconds rest in between. And if I remember correctly, this is where the, the, the work, working hard beats the hard work beats the, the talent where you were never the fastest guy right out of the gate. There might have been, you know, you said the first couple of those, you were maybe middle of the pack, maybe slightly ahead. But then by the 16th one, you would be just finishing the full field and everyone else would be at, uh, at half, at half, <laughs> at half field. Like, how do you, like, where do you tap into that, that dark place? I don't know. Maybe I just like being out front and that feeds me even more. And I, I mean, I've, I've never been an aggressive guy off the ice, but I guess when it comes down to, it, I do get pretty, pretty into it. Um, I don't know how I tap into it. I almost just like, I don't like doing, I think I'm like everybody else. I don't like getting up and going to a workout, but when I have a plan that I'm going to stick to, like I, once I get there, I feel great. So it's just maybe the first bit, but just pushing through that, that, commitment to, to myself that I'm going to do these things is maybe when I get out there my competitive takes over so I don't really have yeah. much of an answer for it uh, it's kind of weird how you know we talk about things like this that seems so like <laughs> like you we both listen to David Goggins I don't know if people know about him but he does all this crazy stuff and it's all yeah. about mental like it's funny talking about this now when it didn't seem like much of the time I was just giving her all out but now we go look back and this is so pivotal it's like it's so funny to think about but uh, it really you do remember these things because those are the ones that stick out these are the ones that stick out and these are the ones where the extra effort and practice comes down to when you're in a pinnacle battle in, the, in a crossroads of your life where you can execute. So I think there's a particular example where, you know, we, as we said, you're undrafted in the OHL, you played after when everyone else your age was the good players, the high level players were playing junior. And then you got an invite to Owen Sound. And then I remember it was a summer day and they did, they were doing fitness testing and it came down to the, to the beep test. And this ended up being truly one of the kind of crucial points, both mentally and with like the momentum of the flow of things that kind of basically kicked off your entire career. And honestly, it's a, it's a pretty cool story if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. So I don't want to give like the whole thing as far as getting there, but basically long story short with getting the invite was I signed in my hometown junior A team, which is step below the OHL. And that was like a huge deal for me. That was like me on my path to maybe getting a scholarship down, down the road. I got this random invite at a random skate. I was at where the guy wasn't even supposed to be scouting. And he asked me to come travel the own sound tack. His name was Brian Denny. So we got there and uh, I trained my butt off that summer. I mean, I knew I had almost no chance to make that team. I just figured I'm going to be in the best shape regardless to play junior. So when I got up there, um, we had the rookie camp first, I think. And I think I tried to be, you know, over the top. I had to make myself known. So I was the front of every line, front of the board, talk, like staring the coach in the eye, doing all the little go hard, try hardy things. That's not cool some of these times. Yeah. Um, but I think that got me on the radar. I played well. But then when the, when the vets and the main camp started, there's a the fitness testing. So the rookie camp, you already are tired from the rookie camp. And then you got to go right into the hard testing. And then the, the vets starts after. So we're doing this beep test. And, you know, I couldn't believe that 
all this running I put in over the summer was going to pay off. Um, and when I got out there and we started the test, all I just really remember is like you said, blacking out my competitive nature coming on because I got to a point where everybody else was dropping out. And I think I ran, I don't know if it's a while ago, but I think I at least ran three levels by myself, I want to say. So run into whatever it was, but running three levels by myself when I could have stopped everyone, I think. And who was watching that at that time? Ex- yeah, I was, all the prospects and the scouts and the GMs and all that stuff and the coach that had seen me work hard in the, in the rookie camp already. So I was kind of backing up all that try hardy stuff I did with the beat test. So running those extra levels when I didn't have to, I think really showed them how, how bad I wanted it. Um, and then went from there, it just kind of snowballed. Like you said, like it was kind of two check marks already. And then I just had to kind of finish the deal. And that's what even gave me the opportunity for them to think I could make that team. So yeah, a lot of I, my billets that I lived with, uh, my first year there, they happened to be there watching in their car because they're big super fans that they are. And they wanted to check out who was running. And they just remember seeing this big, tall, skinny guy just flying up back and forth on the pavement. And that's kind of funny how they still talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of want to, you know, zoom through kind of the way it worked with your junior career where you, you, you did, you killed the beep test, you, you made the team. But, you know, you, you got scratched most of the season. You didn't play. And then you had to go through – your team actually won the OHL championship. Then by some weird uh, twist of fate, you got to play in the Memorial Cup that year. And then the next year, you know, you're like, I paid my dues in my first year. Now I'm going to come out and I'm going to make a name for myself. And that's not what happened. You know, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't go the way you wanted the, you know, the, the, didn't make a name for yourself and it was a huge letdown. And what we'd later find out is going into your third year, you, you know, they had talked about not even wanting you to, that you might not even be on the team. And I think that, you know, adversity doesn't make the man, but it reveals him to himself. And you went into that third year down and out, counted out. And you know, if you don't perform here, it's pretty much the end of the road. Like take us through the mental, you know, focus of that. And then to actually translate that into executing. Yeah. Like after that first year, I went to a the Phoenix Coyotes at the time training camp off really not even playing. And I got this huge adrenaline boost from that. So of course I thought that second season was just going to be my, my time. But looking back in hindsight, I really hadn't even played a rookie season at 18 in the OHL. So how could I expect to do it that well? So I got a little ahead of myself, I think. And, having to go home, not with any interest from any teams this time. And nobody basically saying my spot wasn't secure next year on the team. Like you said, I, I, I just went all out. Me, me and my mom did this at every level. Uh, we said, you know, sorry, me and mom <laughs> said, this is what we got to do. We got to make a plan. So I went to train with Gary Roberts. Um, you know, it's a ton of money for mom to, to fork out for that. Uh, actually he saw me work hard through the first month I was there and gave mom a bit of a discount because I worked so hard. So that helped. Um, coming in at 215, which is what I still play at now, coming in strong. And I just said, you know, I'm going for it. Screw it. Like this camp is a make or break kind of deal. And I remember going through camp kind of okay. Nothing really crazy was happening. Nothing amazing was happening. But right before the season, I went and um, had to sit down with the new coach who I had in my second season as well. And he, you know, he was the one that told me the spot wasn't secure. And I basically said, coach, like I put in all this work. I need a, just a little bit of an opportunity on a line, like uh maybe in the top nine, third line, maybe just something I can grab a hold of and run with. Um, and he put me with Kyle Hope and, and uh, Holden Cook, two of my buddies that I played with there for two years. And we just kind of took off. And 
I finally had a line that clicked. It finally just clicked for me, the confidence, the, eff the work ethic I had, the, the time I'd put in on my skills. And we became like this hardworking, grinding line that just had an awesome year, really. And it was, it was kind of at 19 years old, it took me that long to get to that point. I, you know, that journey started when I was 16. It took me, you know, three years to get where I finally or feel like I'm going to have a, a good year going here. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, that year you end up playing, uh, having a breakout year. I remember, you know, you kind of get the hype built of you're in kind of the contention to get drafted. And I remember the moment when, when mom and I knew we knew you were going to get drafted. It was playoffs against Plymouth. You know, you were only up one goal and uh, a really good player from uh, their team gets it. You intercept a pass, you go on a breakaway, you do a fake shot, backhand goal, and seal the game. And just based on the way things were going, mom and I looked at each other and yelling, we're like, he's going to get drafted. And we knew at that point it was going to happen. And did you yeah. know at that point? Yeah, so funny story. Back up to Christmas, you know, I'm having this year. It's halfway through the year. We're having a team Christmas party on town. Me and mom are just standing there having like a soda or something, pop. And our GM comes up to me, Dale DeGray, and he just comes up smiling, like this weird smile on his face. And me and mom are like, what, like, what's up, Dale? Like, what's up, Digger? And he's just like, Curse is going to get drafted. And me and mom were almost like, my jaw, like, hit the floor. I was like, yeah. sorry, what did you just say? Sorry, what was that now? It's like, I, me? I didn't even think I was eligible at that point. He said, no, there's, there's a too much interest for him to not get drafted. You keep playing like this and get better, like, it's probably going to happen. And holy mind shattered <laughs> at that point. And then, I, then the, you know, then I went, you know, how much harder I could go just putting it all into. And like you said, I got that. That was a shorthanded goal. Picked out Vinny Trocek's pass. And then I get, you know, early in the game, I fought a guy and beat him up pretty good. And I got to sit. So you get a Gordial hat trick. And, you know, I think Minnesota was in the building that night. So, uh, yeah, probably helped, probably helped me get drafted for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. So flash forward 2015, November 10th. I'm there. It's we're in Minnesota. You you called you called us and you said I'm gonna I got called up. I'm gonna play in my first game, and you fly out. Uh, our stepdad Bill, mom, myself, and and our and our good friend Mark, and we all come to the game. And I still have videos of you. You know you're ripping around the arena and warm up. There's you know mom's crying in the stands. You got the camo warm up jerseys. The place is packed. And kind of the, the culmination of everything you had worked for was up until that moment. How does it feel to have set a goal? I'm going to play. I want to play in the NHL, sacrificing for years, not going to parties, not, you know, not going out, following a strict workout regime. And then you're, you know, you're skating around in the warm up, and you're like, I'm about to play in the NHL. Yeah. Yeah. Music was bumping. Like I went out to center ice. I had my back directly at center ice looking back on my end. So uh, I'm looking at everything just kind of in front of me, like Minnesota, the fans are crazy. It's already full for warm up, everything. So on my left side, I have, I can see you, mom, Mark and Bill. And on the right side, I can see Reimer, my buddy and his dad that flew into the game. And I'm kind of yep. just looking back and forth, listen to the music. I can look over my shoulder and see the Winnipeg Jets. And I'm just like, holy cow, man. Like, this is crazy. Like, like you said, all the sacrifices of that stuff, all the, you know, sometimes like three days I did where I'd work out, skate, and then, oh, I had a choice to go do the boxing and extra fighting training, but I could not go if I didn't want to. But I went, you know, all days driving around the Toronto area to Oshawa to skate to here. To, so 
that all went through my head real quick. And then it was just pure <laughs> like elation and excitement. I was just fired up to get going. Like I was like, holy cow, I might run through the end boards here. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you got in a fight in that game and then, you know, you, you know, you played a couple games in the NHL during the season and then you go back down, uh, you go back down to the, to the minors and then the Minnesota wild is playing the Dallas stars in the playoffs and, you know, they're, they lose a couple games. So they want to, you know, switch it up a bit and they, you know, they call you up and now you're playing in the, in the Stanley cup playoffs. <laughs> What's that like? Yeah. Like finish the year down there. I remember being on the bus in Iowa and we were coming back and usually you booze and have a good time on the and last bus of the year coming home. But I remember thinking like they're down two nothing and they've been kind of out muscled a bit in the series. I'm thinking, what if I, I've been playing real well down here. What if I get a chance to go up? Like, just I had that thought. And I remember getting called to the front of the bus and saying, hey, Gabe's like, coach sat me down, like, don't drink too many beers. Like, you're going up there tomorrow. So I was like, holy crap. So that was a pretty cool reason not to be drinking out with the boys. But uh, to go up there, the friggin' rally towels are going. Like, you're coming out of the tunnel. It's just to have that train horn or whatever is. <laughs> you're like floating around the ice. And I know that I'm there to like bring that playoff energy, which is what I've always wanted to do. That's like my type of game. And yeah, we win two games at home. So turn the series around there. We ended up losing, but that was a crazy experience. And I almost scored too. All the boys I that I played with that I year almost were up lost black it. Facing. <laughs> Yeah, all of them were up top and they almost said they all fell out of their chairs. But uh, no, that's, I'll never forget those things. That was awesome. Um, yeah, like every kid dreams of playing the playoffs. So the energy, I just felt like I couldn't get tired. Like I just couldn't skate for days. The energy was crazy, and the energy was probably at its zenith when puck goes around the end of the ice. And was it Klingberg, great defenseman, yeah. and you absolutely bulldoze <laughs> them home at Minnesota. And the, man, the Americans love some good, good, uh, good hits, and they yeah. went berserk. Like, did yeah, you just feel was, like you were like, just like floating on air at that point? Yeah. Like I could see him go back to the puck and they said no icing. And I just remember the clip. I put my head down and just skated as hard as I could. and just knew I was not going for that puck. I was just trying to fire <laughs> the building up. And that was a pretty cool feeling. Um, and they, that's what they had draft. They said they drafted me to do that in the playoffs to be that physical guy that could get in on the four check and turn pucks over. And, you know, at least I did it for a couple games in the playoffs. At least uh, happy I did that a bit. Yeah. Absolutely. I bet. And I think it was uh, the, the next year, the, the next season, you get called back up with Minnesota and you're playing against the Leafs at the ACC in Toronto, your, your childhood, your childhood team growing up, your favorite team. And I remember, you know, Mark and mom and Bill and, and some other friends were all there. What was it like to be in the ACC playing against the Leafs? The last time you were in that arena, you were watching a game. Yeah. I had already played a couple of games since being up, and I knew that was coming up that game. And that was probably the cockiest warm-up I ever had. I don't know. I was like <laughs> singing every song. I was like, dancing around the ice doing crazy stuff. I was just feeling myself. And that's such a cool feeling to have that where you, I went and watched my one and only NHL game ever back in the day with Mom. Yeah, uh, watching Leafs against the Devil. So I was there on that ice. Totally different than I thought it would be. It's so weird how in real life things are not what you expect when you watch them on TV. So such a surreal, weird feeling. And to get a nice, greasy, you know, not pretty, but coaches kind of drawn up a second assist on a goal and then getting in a yeah. fight. And that was, and coming up and seeing all you guys after, uh, being able to hug you, 
the short amount of time I had and mom's crying and just kind of like, wow, like I played in like the holy grail of hockey and then getting to play in Montreal next. It was like, what the heck this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, you fought, yeah, you fought, fought Roman Polak, as you said, that was a crazy, um, yeah. Then, yeah, as you said, you went and played in, in Montreal and then the kind of the next big milestone I would say in your career from my perspective was last year, I get a text from Mark Curtis just scored. You score against the, the Ottawa senators and then uh, right after that, a uh, couple, couple days later, same week, I think, you scored against Carey Price. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is almost seven years after you're getting drafted. Uh, sorry, almost six years after getting drafted. You know, you started playing junior almost a decade prior. How, how did that feel? Oh, the first one, I remember seeing Ebrecy who snapped it back to me. I, I had a feeling he was going to win. He said, Gabe, be ready to shoot it. And I just remember being like, I just had this weird feeling like kind of gotten before it's just like, man, I just fucked come to me and I just shot as hard as I could. And thank gosh, the goalie reached up and tried to catch it and ended up going in. So I didn't see it going the net, but that was just a relief. Like, okay, I've been playing. Okay. I thought with Jersey and to get a goal kind of just really help a guy like me scoring a goal is going to help my case any day. So, but like you said, that two days later, I think it was playing the Canadians. That goal was, that was really my first NHL goal for me in a way, because yeah. just the way it happened, um, I was, going I was been playing well um uh, came down the wall and kept the puck in and then just beating a guy to the net and being able to tip it and then see the empty net there and put it in to know you're going to score before you score uh, in a way and then having room to kind of let some emotion out and I've never had a better feeling in my life than that one that yeah. was far none the best feeling being able to scream and jump into the glass like yeah oh my gosh crazy crazy feeling man it's that's the, that's what you live for right there like that's what I chase when I I'm working out and when I'm training, like those moments are what make it worth it. Yeah. And with the, with these big moments, like the goals in your first NHL game and these kind of things, you know, there's so much about your, you dream of something and then your expectation is different from reality. Where's that gap? Is it anticlimactic? Is it better in a way? Is it different? Like what, like what is kind of the, the, to reconcile what we think it would be like to what it's actually like? Yeah, so I never had that feeling in Minnesota. So I never had that feeling. I always, it seemed like a bit of a disappointment there in a way. Like everything went great, but I just, I never was comfortable, never could kind of get a foothold of where I felt accepted kind of there. And I don't know, it just didn't feel, didn't feel right, I guess. But going to Jersey and then going up there and having a really tumultuous year in the minors before that and then getting a chance and then just them, kind of like, like the trait, whether there was the trainers, the, the coaches, the the players, just feel, I felt comfortable. I felt like I could be myself. Um, you know, like, it's so funny, like, you know, a new guy to the team, I'm like a rookie, you don't touch the music, but like they were playing some kind of a weak music before the game. And I was just like, I don't care. Like I'm feeling confident enough. Like I'm going to go rip some ACDC on my iPhone. And I remember Ben Lovejoy just like, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything, but he beat me up. So it's just like funny. Like that's, that's what I kind of expected. Like, why wouldn't you want a guy to be successful when he comes up? They, they know I'm out there trying to protect them and stuff and, and trying to just, I would like, I don't know. That's where NHL should be for me is like, you bring a guy in, you make it feel comfortable and let you get the best out of him. So I felt like I got that there and uh, that's the best hockey I've ever played. Obviously it didn't work out when you get to go back there, but yeah, it's that for sure. There was what I expected it to be, you know? Yeah the kind of feeling like when you have the hardest work in practice, we had the hardest practices there. I loved it. Hard practice. You know, you're dead tired. I go back, there's a shooting room there. I just go spend two hours in the shooting room and I have to like set a timer. So I didn't sleep all night. Like 
unlimited energy I felt like I had. And then I could go to bed at, you know, 11 o'clock and I just want to hop out of bed at five in the morning. I, I sleep usually eight hours. I could run on anything for like three months there. It's so that's what I tend to be like. And it never really faded. I'm sure for guys who end up playing there a long time, it might fade, but dreams for that, for me, I know that they are that good because that three months, man, I could just go. It was the best feeling ever. Yeah, for sure. So w- w- with these big moments, like, uh, as we just said, so the goals, you know, getting drafted, these kind of things, you know, I remember you saying and seeing you obviously responding to hundreds and hundreds of messages from every single person in your life, you know, best friends, acquaintances, people that said you weren't good, people that said you weren't make it, you know, when you make it, everyone, everyone knew you were going to make it. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of like, I don't even want to talk about the just getting them specifically because that's obvious, but just from a, from a human curiosity, the average person, just like the fighting in front of everyone doesn't experience that. How does that, you know, how, how does that kind of touch on your, your play with your ego and how do you, you know, not let that get the best of you, which I, I would imagine is not easy. Yeah. I mean, I agree to some extent, like some things are, you can see how guys that have come up, the, the superstar way their whole life can kind of get inflated like that and stuff. Um, I feel like with me, I, 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 I separate it decently well, but the, my role I play also, I'm not a guy that's ever, I, I should never be that super cocky of a guy. So I thought I was able to handle it decently well. Um, you, sometimes you are you catching yourself. And it's like, Oh, I got to answer all these texts, but it's like, you kind of can't like it's, you try to do the best you can, but at some point you got to kind of be a little selfish and like, I got to stay here or try to stay here. Like I can't extend myself. Yeah. I'll try to do a little bit with uh, appearances if they ask me to, but like I was just trying to stay. So in that way, I felt a little selfish, but uh, as far as my own humility and ego, I felt pretty good about it. Like, I don't think it changed me. Um, I just think I had to get a little more, even more narrow focus when I was there. And that can kind of feel a little guilty, I guess, but uh when you want something bad, I was willing to, I'm willing to sacrifice anything for it. So uh, definitely a weird feeling when you have, you know, like, like you said, those people that weren't like, I don't know, come out of the woodwork and stuff, but uh, yeah, uh, I thought I handled it well. I, I think so too. And if getting some messages is get you know, getting some messages gets the, the ego up in any way, the, I guess the next level of that is getting that, that blue verified check mark on your, on your, tw- on your Twitter and Instagram. Like I, and I, and as to, to kind of go off what you just said, you obviously like have, have handled it well. And, but just because you've kind of made the decisions to handle it well, it doesn't mean the, you know, the thoughts don't initially creep in when those things happen. So, you know, ha- like, how do you feel when you, when you get that social clout verification and then, I guess the question would be, how do you, how do you not let that get the best of you as so many people it does? Uh, I don't know. Like the way that it popped up when I was in Minnesota, when I'd been up there a month. So that was kind of me. Like the only thing it really did for me at the time was maybe make me think maybe I actually am going to stay here the rest of the year. Maybe I kind of, I've been here a month. We're like 12 and one. We haven't lost the game regulation. Like maybe I'm going to be sticking around here a little bit. So in that way, it just kind of fired me up. Like, Oh my gosh, just do everything even more to the, to the T and not mess anything up and keep it going. But um, to be honest, again, like, I don't think I, I don't know. You don't really notice it. It's, I think any, I think humans can adapt to anything. We get used to a new normal, if that's even a new normal, but I didn't really, other than that, when I got sent down, I didn't even, I mean, great. I have the blue check mark, I guess, but I'd rather <laughs> have it and stay up there. Like I'm not an NHL player. I'm sitting here talking right now. So 
Yeah. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it changed too much, but you know, that's the little things that you like, it's like you said, like not many people experience that, but coming from this side of it, it would have been better if I just stayed up there, but I'm not there. So I can't really, can't really say there's too much clout with it, to be honest. Sure. And how do you deal, you know, have you dealt with imposter syndrome? And then if you have, like, how do you deal with that? Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Yeah. Imposter syndrome is where you're, you know, you're, you know, you wake up and you're in an NHL hotel or you're eating steak on a private jet and you're like, am I like, do I, should I be here right now? Like those oh. kind of like, imposter syndrome, oh. you feel like an imposter of where you are. Oh, I mean, I think, I think I've, I don't know, I guess I, I, I thought I earned being there, but yeah, there are times when you're just like, can it be like with that time in New Jersey when I was there, can it be like as good as I think it is being here? Like, Am I, have I actually been here three months? Like when I, when they, and when they told me, you know, you're up at the, at the all-star break or something, you can't go back down or there's some rule like that. And they told me I'd be here for the rest of the year. Like verbally the coach said that I was just like, holy cow. So I think, I think I went through that a couple of times when you're like sitting on the bench, you haven't played for a couple of minutes and then you know, maybe five, six minutes and you're kind of sitting there like, I'm still in an NHL game. Like, Hey, oh, snap back into it here. So I think that happens a little bit uh, when you achieve something or at a level that you've always wanted to be. So. Yeah, I think so. That's funny. I never heard it like imposter syndrome called like that. But yeah, I mean, it's when you dream about something for that long and work towards it when something you never thought it was even possible to be there, I definitely have to pinch yourself a little bit. Yeah. And if if you don't pinch yourself, Twitter definitely will. Um, we could do an entire uh, we could entire, do an entire mean tweet uh, episode. You know, people say some horrible horrible things. So if you have any any trouble getting back to reality, it's not too hard with that kind of stuff. So how do you how do you deal with you know seeing tweets of people being like you're horrible at hockey, you should never play, like and, and just truly the meanest meanest things people could possibly say. Yeah. So with all you know, these questions and how you not get too inflated, I, I think the real kind of like now that you're getting to it, the real question is that one is like, how do you stay up and feel good right. and actually keep yourself inflated with all this negative, you know, obviously the game's changing and I'm never going to, you know, the eye test, you're never going to think I'm the fastest skater or the smoothest guy or the, you know, skilled. So obviously there's going to be critics, the guys who are the best in the world get criticized sometimes. But um, so for me, it was more of, and still is to this day, like, am I, you know, good enough to like keep doing this when people have those opinions of you? And um, some days it's tough when things are going well, it's a little easier to shrug it off. Be like, yeah, it's fine. I know I'm yeah. playing well. When it's not, it's kind of a little harder to, to take those in sometimes. So obviously in, in Jersey, I felt like I had, I don't know what the percentage was, but there was, it's always been that way for me. You either like me and love me or you hate me a lot. So um, yeah. there's definitely those fans and, people that thought I was doing an unbelievable job. And then there's people that just the polar opposite who thought I was, I mean, I'm sure they wouldn't say it to your face and I'm sure they don't think I'm a bad person, but as my abilities, yeah. you know, I'm not that great. So yeah, that was the battle for me. I, I think I try to just use them as motivation to fire me up more. I have so many things that could fire me up. I think that's why I always am that guy. The guys are like, Holy crap, calm down, calm it down a little bit, but um, yeah. still grinding away at that to this day. And there's ups and downs and um, I've always been able to get out of it. So just kind of keep trying to do that. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine, like I, I work at a company if I did a, had a bad call or something like that. If I, you know, go to my social media and there's people making fun of me, like, I don't know how I, how I deal with that. And I think that's just such a unique, a very unique uh, experience. 
Now, you know, that's the negative side of, you know, Twitter and social media, but there's also, you know, a, a lot of people that, you know, say a lot of nice things. And I, I just saw it was, was it just yesterday? C congratulations. You won the, the man of the year award for, for your team there in, in Lehigh Valley. Yeah. A couple of days ago. So that yeah, so feels nice to be recognized. Um, and as I said, as I said to the local uh, radio station and the lady who worked for our team interviewed me, it's, I got just as much out of, those kids and those people spending time with them as they got out of me. I mean, I feel like you said all these things are happening in hockey and this, you sign up for this job, but sometimes you don't realize how pressure packed it is. And to get outside that world and give back people actually helped me a lot too. So it's not a, it's not something I'm, you know, it's, there's a selfish element too. Like it's people helping people that goes both ways. And I listened to your last podcast with your, how you're pumping up your friends. It just goes back to that thing. You know, when you do your friends do well, you're going to feel better and you, giving back to that community, um, doing that really, really helped me a lot. Yeah, I can see that. And I think that's been pretty consistent throughout your career. And I think you've always, you've always done with, done well with little kids. I remember back when we were growing up and you were a little bit older and there's a couple of the younger kids and we did like a, like an army day and you were like the sergeant, you know, you know, getting everyone hyped up and bossing them all uh, around there. So, you know, obviously you've kind of just touched on it a bit, um, but you know, what, what kind of got you, obviously the hockey and being around the community got you into doing this community stuff. Um, but what, what really, you know, made you just continue to be so involved? Uh, I just, I can think back to one experience. Um, I never had a lot of hockey players around me to look up to as role models, like in-person role models. I never grew up around a super big junior team or anything. I just, we had the New Market Hurricanes who are a tier two team. And I just remember I won chuck -a puck one night when I was there at the moment I won a jersey. And I hadn't even meet the guys. I thought like, I can't meet the guys. They're like too sick to meet them. You know what I mean? So I had the jersey of some dude I knew, like was on the team and put that in my, and I, and I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. So I can't imagine how I would have felt meeting like a pro hockey player or a guy that's played in the NHL or a guy that's an AHL player. Um, I'd, I'd be just over the moon. So I like doing that thing with the hockey kids a lot, but then there's also the kids with the sled hockey I work with who don't even get to play you know, real hockey, they get to do it at their, their own version with their disabled disabilities. And they're just so excited to have a, a real hockey player there. So I, I know how much such a small thing meant for me and for that to go back the other way. And hopefully I can keep doing that. It, that means a lot and um, try to work with as many things as I can. Don't try to stretch myself too thin, but you and me, I think are going to should go to this. Uh, well, now it's this pandemic, but go to that shared grief project camp where kids who have lost a parent uh, go go hang out with other kids that have lost a parent I think that would have benefited us greatly so I think that's something when this hell ends we should go out and do together I think it'd be a great thing for both of us but that's giving back like that is is so important and, and just goes just shows you how much it means if a jersey meant that much to me how much this time spent time's the most valuable thing just spending time with people means a lot yeah yeah for sure and you know you touched upon that you know we lost we lost our dad pretty young so what, and what, what I kind of want to touch here is it might end up, you know, circling back to hockey, but just kind of talking more generally uh, around grief. So um, what I'll do is I'll, <clears throat> I'll kind of share my, my side of the story and then, you know, let you, let you jump in after and kind of fill in your side and then we can kind of go from there. So, you know, I believe I was, you know, four or five, Curtis was about, uh, you know, seven or so when our, when our parents got divorced and, you know, my, Curtis and I, we lived with our mom. And then I remember specifically one day I was watching TV alone and 
Have you ever, you know, been on the phone with someone and you're, you know, preoccupied and you weren't really listening and you're like, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that, that's what I did on, on that call. And I don't remember anything he said. And then I remember the next day, it was a particularly good day at school. And then I remember afterwards, Curtis, you and I, we were at daycare and we were making fake IDs. I remember, you know, drawing in little details. You remember weird stuff. And then our, the mom comes and picks us up with our, and our grandparents are there, which is weird. And, you know, we asked why, and they said, we'll tell you after dinner. And then we go home and there's a couple stuffed animal bears there. And we said, why are they here? And they said, we'll tell you after dinner. And then after dinner, they sit us down. I remember it was two small couches facing each other. I'm, we're sitting across from each other. Our mom's on my right and our grandparents are on your left. And then I just remember the words that we'll, I'll ne we'll never forget to the day we die. And, and mom said, daddy went to heaven. And... I remember I, I, I was eerily stoic. I kind of just was sit, sat there stunned. And I just remember this ineffable tremor up my spine that can't even be related as I had to reorient myself on this new paradigm where I thought, you know, bad things happen to other people, but not me. This can't be happening. And, you know, I'll let you share your side. But initially there, you, you took it a little harder than me. And you're a little, you know, more visibly, visibly upset. And, but I remember at one point, um, I remember it was, uh, I, I was kind of sat there frozen. I wasn't crying. I was, even though I was seven years old and I say to mom and I was like, so what happened? And she said it was uh, she said it was a terrible train accident. And then I think it was a couple of weeks ago, it might've been a couple of months. My memory's fuzzy on this part, but she sits you and I down at, after dinner and says, I got to tell you something. And at this point, I'm, I'm paranoid. I'm like, what is it? Is it granny? And e even to this day, I've like, even if I'm on the phone with someone, or it's you or mom, and I'm in an argument or pissed, I always, always do my best to say I love you at the end, because I always have that in the back of my mind that you never really know, because I just found out I was on the phone with my dad the day before he died. And then she sits us down and she said, No, it's not granny. It's, it's about your dad. Uh, she said, I said it was a terrible train accident, but it, but it wasn't. He, he jumped in front of the train on, on purpose. So then I had to kind of reconcile and sit there and sit in the knowledge that I had just been on the phone with him the night before, pretty much ignored him. And then the next day, you know, he willingly flung himself onto uh, on oncoming train. And, you know, I, ne I never personally blamed myself for that because obviously if every time a seven-year-old ignored someone, someone died, then there'd be a lot more dead people. <laughs> but nonetheless, it still makes me kind of beg the question, like, what if I had felt more conversational that night? Um, but yeah, and, you know, the next day I remember, I remember that night we were watching some shitty Batman movie and the next day I was out on the street and I just kind of kept on keeping on. But, and, you know, from it didn't hit me hard in a way where it was just visible all the time where I was like, like egregiously upset, but I'm sure it kind of affected me in more ways than I even kind of know. Um, so I'll kind of let you, you know, jump in and share your side. Yeah. I don't know how you remember some of those details. I mean, it just shows like we have a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. Like I don't remember any, like I was not along just thinking in my head, like, how does he remember all these details? Um, <laughs> so like you were, you're that young and you remember talking on the phone and you know, where they were sitting and this and that. All I, all I remember is at school, 
called whatever to go get picked up by mom we get home they tell us i thought heaven was a weird choice because we weren't religious that's what sort of sticks yeah. out somehow i think she's trying to make cry. us feel comfortable about it <laughs> yeah and then i start crying obviously because i'm i'm older i guess or I, and I'm, we're just different i'm probably more emotional in some ways but uh yeah i don't know doesn't a lot of things don't stick out which is weird maybe it's the brain damage i've had <laughs> concussions yeah because you said because you said there that like the the called after the principal's office i could be wrong and we can clarify with mom but i'm pretty sure i because re i remember weird details i remember us doing the fake ids at the daycare after school yeah yeah, yeah it's like yeah, so it's so weird how the, the, the minutia gets caught up sometimes. But anyway, yeah. so yeah, what then? So, so we get, you're, we're home now. Well, yeah, and then she, well, she, I, she told us yeah. that, whatever. So I started crying. So obviously, I was just like, what is going on? I guess it's just so bizarre. That's all I can really remember. And then kind of how everything just kind of kept on going as normal, really. Like we went and saw that counselor with the, the things to hug, you know, like yeah. a little doll. That was pretty much it. And then it was pretty much like carry on and move on. And I don't really think it, I think it's like you said, it's things affecting you don't really know. I think it's subconsciously affected me, obviously super hard, but I didn't have any, any really like things that I can remember that I go, oh, wow. Like I thought about it when until like I first drank in like high school in like grade 10. Like I probably went from 10 years old to whatever, 15, 16 and then it just you know you lose your inhibitions and drinking and it just all came pouring out to kev our buddy at the park like after the party like so it's yeah. weird for me that it kind of had delayed onset in a way i mean i i don't know if it was that close after she told us he took his own life but obviously that was another whole layer and like a train how like strange is that you never hear about that um so then i think from then on it was just now like he didn't want to be in our life so i didn't blame myself but now i was pissed off like right. really really pissed off because uh, you know she said he loved us and cared about us it's like well clearly not so right. when it hit that fifth that 15 age to probably 2021 20, i was just pissed and angry a lot about it and no idea how to deal with it I, I didn't know back then that talking about it was so much so beneficial um we didn't you and me didn't talk about it nearly enough which no. is a huge problem and how i, I think, think part of the reason why that is is because like as you talked about this anger and these kind of things i don't know what it is maybe it's some sort of emotional blind spot or something but i just had i never had any animosity i was never i don't remember i, I still to this day unless it's like deep down which is theoretically possible but i just never was angry or mad i was just like that kind of happened, I guess, which is weird because, you know, I guess we, people just grieve and handle things differently. And maybe, maybe it is held down there somewhere that I'm just not aware of. Uh, but yes, and I think I listened to you recently. I was in preparation of this. I was listening to you do an interview about the, you know, the, the grieving organization. And, you know, you, you talked about being angry and then, and then you, what, what changed that made you, because, you know, you, you kind of switched it around and kind of recognized that clearly he was someone who was battling, you know, having a mental health crisis and, and not having anyone to talk about. Yeah. So I think I just got to the point where like I was trying to, what I was angry and mad about was that I was going to prove to him I could become this man that he was going to miss out on seeing me do all this awesome stuff. Like that was yeah. like a big motivation of mine. So I think it got to the point where, you know, the Bell Let's Talk and mental health, like what an impact it's made. Cause then I started to realize like, like it's literally a disease. It's a, he's sick. It's not, he didn't choose to be sick. He chose to be sick and took his own life. I'd be mad, but it's like, he didn't choose that. It's, 
he clearly had some, you know, chemicals off on his brain. It got to the point where it was chronic and terrible. So, I mean, we all go through some level of depression, but for some people, it just hits them harder, just like alcohol hits other people harder, drugs hit people harder. So clearly he had an issue that sad that he didn't have those resources that we do now. Um, and what an impact it's made that I could make that realization at like 21, 22 years old, where from then on after it's the time I thought of as much as the time I thought about him got less and less. I wouldn't even think of to him on a month to month basis. And I think that's because I did was able to accept it. You know, that kind of, I kind of was morphed into you. Like there's no animosity towards it anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Like I had dreams that I'd seen in my killing myself and it got to the point where I'm good now. Like it's, Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Um, and like, I get, I get, and we don't have to get into this if you if you don't want. We can even edit it out or whatever. But like, obviously, I mean, we don't know to the level of the way you know mental illness can be chronic and passed on by genetics. Um, but then also the reality of you know we talked at the beginning like you've you've been in a lot of fights, you know, with and you know you've taken taken some hits. You've had a hit, you know concussions etc you know is this something that you've you've thought to try and you know get out ahead on or just something you've thought about in general oh yeah i've thought about it a lot um talked about it with my ex-girlfriend a lot i've brought it up to you and mom obviously um no you're just asking the question because it's a podcast but yeah it's uh something i'm well aware of anytime i'm feeling extra low i'm just gonna blurt it out to you guys without shame kind of thing so I've definitely yeah. had, I feel like I get higher than lower than most people. We've talked about that. Like you, yeah. you kind of seem to be a little more even keeled and I've always just been that super emotional. Like it's my high emotions that are my strength, but then my low ones that are, can be a weakness. So uh, yeah. I think that's just the thing that I'm just going to have to deal with. I mean, it's not chronic to any level, but of course it makes you think like you want to nip it in the bud at any kind of level before it gets to that. So um, I'm really happy with how it's gone. It's obviously gotten really low, but that's why people need to know that you literally have to talk about it. There's no shame in that. So I, I'm not at any level that's super bad, but even me, just it stops it in its tracks when I tell you guys about it. I offload it to my family and my support system. And yeah, something I think about, you know, CTE can apparently change your moods, uh, your and all that stuff. So I've had, you know, some concussions, not not a, like a ton, but all those little ones add up, I guess. But yeah, I'm just happy I'm here to sit with you now and, and feel good about where I'm at and able to talk talk about this and not get like emotional about anything because I am in a good place. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, you mentioned to just blurt it out with shame and it'll be hard sometimes when you're in the thick of it, no matter what, but that's why it's really important to have that communication with the people that you'd want to be able to communicate when you're going through something before you're going through something. So that when, when it comes up, you've already had that verbal from them be like, Hey, listen, don't, don't, don't hold it from me. Like, let me know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think everyone needs to have that kind of support system, right? Like it's so great that Jonathan talked about talked about that in your first podcast about having that men's group that he has that they can offload anything and um, nothing can you can tell all. So I think everybody should have that some kind of support system. And if you don't have that, you got to take advantage of those like call lines. Um, you got to find there's there's multiple ways you can get help. So I think it's something that uh, is everybody needs that support system, whether it's a big one or just one person, you got to have someone to offload that stuff to. You can't keep that stuff aside. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Jonathan's group that he created and you actually been the benefactor, the benefactor of that one of them, because 
I ended up my, my partner, everyone was paired up with an accountability partner. My partner just, you know, it didn't end up, he didn't feel like continuing to do it. And then I kind of enrolled you to join me a little bit informally on uh, a little bit informally on uh, a practice or a daily discipline we we're going to do for eight weeks. And we've done that. It was a 10 minute meditation, you know, both of us had done a bit of meditation, but kind of, all right, let's, stick this and we can kind of hold each other accountable. Have, have you noticed anything, you know, any, any benefits from that? Um, well, the accountability part just makes you do it every day where you don't, you know, sometimes even the person with the most biggest work ethic and the most willpower will let it slip for some reason. But really when you get tangible results for something is when you stick to it consistently. So doing it with you, it's now become part of my routine where it's the first thing I think about when my alarm goes off. I don't go up to go to the bathroom. I do a 10 minute meditation. Boom. Guardy got something good done in the day. So I think it goes back to the whole try hard thing. Like, I don't know. It makes me think of that. Like some people just think trying extra hard and, yeah. you know, there's all these memes and stuff on social media. It's like, Oh, me and my depression and not caring. And it's like, it's like, like, I don't know. It's like making that cool somehow, like people not trying and not caring. I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing, but I think people don't realize like to make a change in your life it has to be like focused intention. So like for a while, even me waking up, I didn't want to meditate right away. You have to like make an alarm that says meditate yeah. and then like put a sticky note beside it. Like that's not lame. That's practical and smart. So like you got to make those commitments to yourself. And when you have someone like you to do that, it's helped a lot. So now I'm waking up and having, you know, 10 minutes of deep breathing and thinking about my day and thinking about positive things and, and growing happiness under my feet. The big thing right now, just being happy with whatever I have, wherever I am. So look how much that just sparked me talking about you making yeah. that a daily thing. Right. And, I was doing meditation before. It just didn't have as much intention behind it. And now I have someone in the fight with me. We're all just, we're social beings. We want to be in the fight with other people. So it's great stuff. Yeah. And I would say a really good, a really good, um, you know, obviously to get where you're at, you had to be extremely disciplined and you might be one of the very tiny few people on planet earth that when you have a meal plan written out, you literally do it down to the grain of rice. Like so many people, you know, they do it 90, 95%, they fall off. When you, when you, when you set a goal or when you do a discipline, like you do, you do the discipline in its entirety. And you've kind of told me before that you kind of have like an all or nothing mentality around that. So would you be able to kind of touch a bit on the mentality around sticking to that and then maybe even expand that to a little bit broader around kind of creating habits and rituals and routines for yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to me just being competitive. Like when I say I'm going to do something, I try as heck to do it. So um, yeah, uh, I want the most results. So the most consistent you look online, it's like there's everything on the internet these days. You used to look up like, how do you get results? It's consistent focused, concerted effort over time. That breeds results. That's literally why we're sitting here talking about me being, having played in the NHL and still I'm trying to make it there and still trying to play professional hockey. It's all the small things. It's being present right in the moment and having, doing everything with intention and not being, you know, having something on in the background. Like I'm just trying to be present as I can. And as I've gotten older, it's gotten a little harder with all the distractions of social media and all these different things. But I think, that really set the foundation for me personally because I did it and had success. So um, sometimes I did it and didn't have success and I had to go back to it and I go back to the drawing board and do it all over again. And then I get success from it. So like that classic thing of, uh, I can't really tell you how many times I thought about the classic uh, meme or the picture of the guy digging for diamonds and yeah. he stops when the diamonds are another yeah. couple smacks away. Right. Like 
I've been there so many times with hockey, man. And the yeah. worst time before in Jersey when I didn't think I had a chance. And then I ended up playing the most games up there. Like, and it, like, I'm up there a week later. It's just like crazy. We could go down that whole path. But I think that's, for me, that's it. Yeah, I did it. I kept doing things until I got result. When I found, oh, I got one result. Now I was chasing the next one. I knew it was going to come. Just got to yeah. keep working at it and, and working to, to get there. So I know that's what I think about when you tell me about where that comes from. Yeah. And where, you know, you talked about there's on to the next one. How do you, you know, achievement can be precarious in a way and that it's kind of, it can end up being, you know, chasing the carrot at the end of the stick can be moving the goalposts. How do you, how do you like, can, how do you with two worlds of trying to do more and do the best while also being happy about, you know, how you've, how, how you've done thus far? Yeah. Uh That's a weird one, right? Because it's like, that's what I'm in right now, basically. Like, talking to you before doing this, I didn't really want to talk about these kinds of things. But here we are, right? Like, it's, it's, what, it's what happens when you talk to people that you love and you, that support you. And it's going to bring the best. So it's kind of like a little healing in a way. Like, my season didn't go the way I wanted it to at all. It was not I, – I got better in this, but it didn't go great. So, um, I'm in one of those times right now. So, you know, you do great things and then – like it's like every plat every plat every breakthrough is great, but the down is just as strong or stronger than all the past ones. So when you say that, that's what I think about. It's just like now I'm just reorientating myself around when it doesn't go the way I want it to. And life has a weird way of working out in ways that you don't expect, but it's kind of right where you need to end up. And I think mm-hmm. you and me talk about Jordan Peterson and that potential TED talk he has, right? Like you 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 find something, you tune into what you like, you focus on it, you work at it. And through that journey of constantly working at it, constantly hammering it away on it, it reveal life reveals so many different things for you and the universe reveals so many different things for you. So for me, that's what I try to, when I'm in those moments now, I'm trying to reorientate myself and get back on that horse to get, go back to grinding and get after my goals. Like that's what I think about is that regardless of me failing or succeeding, first of all, failure, what we now know, everybody knows it sucks to say, but it's prerequisite to success. So I just try to focus on, those couple like little mantras, I guess, that the more I chase what I truly love and am passionate about, the better things are going to happen for me. And if I keep doing that, like kind of everything will work out the way it's supposed to be. It's when you get complacent. It's when you don't trust yourself. You don't trust who you are and don't accept who you are is when you get down in a, in a rough area. And maybe that's what happened to our dad. Who knows? Yeah, for sure. And I think the thing to touch upon that is when sometimes we get caught up in if we're, we have this goal in mind and maybe it doesn't go perfectly to planned, then the whole effort, the whole process of it was all for naught. And that's just, that's just not true because obviously there's exceptions, but for the most part, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. Or at least when it comes to the way you put your mind on a certain goal and, and go to, go to achieve it. So kind of circling back on, on a couple of things here, kind of touching it up here is pretty interesting. So I was talking, mom, mom watched our, our, my, my last podcast and talking about habits and she messaged me and she's like, wow, I didn't realize all these like good habits that I had in place. And it, it was pretty interesting where uh, she listed all these habits and her mindset of, okay, I don't want to go for a walk, but I always feel good when I go for a walk. So I'm going to go for a walk. And then as she's reading it out, as I was reading it, I felt like I might as well have been reading my own writing. And I kind of had that like, like eureka moment like of course we're we're related and i think sometimes especially with me you and mom and i think in general for the broader perspective for people listening sometimes 
we get so caught up with, you know, there's obviously going to be, you know, difficulties and tensions within families and stuff. But sometimes we get so caught up on where we differ that we, we kind of forget how much we have, uh, how much we have in common. 100%. I mean, if you think about, you know, well, let's, 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 let's give people the context of the difficulties first, right? Like, so me and my mom or our mom are more similar to each other. We'd say we're kind of on one side and then you have that yeah. different personality that we've always wondered, where do you get this uniqueness to your personality? It makes you so uh, unique of a person. So, but then, you know, we've had our battles with, you're just, you're just, you don't like authority as much. You're very, you're, you like to really <laughs> march to beat your own drum or me and my mom have always been like rule followers and uh, me and mom always rule followers and kind of, more worried about things things bother us a little bit more you have these like this amazing ability to let things just just go right off your back it's like oh something bad happened it's like whatever it's like big big deal we're moving on and me and mom want to dwell on it so there's those differences but then there's those similarities like you said like you comparing that with mom it's so similar you know you get obsessed with things like i get obsessed i got obsessed yes. with hockey. so uh you know mom seems to get a little obsessed with like yes. things she does so i think that we all share that like when you're younger you tag along to all my hockey and stuff and the next thing you know, you're like in circus school, it's like what? And the next thing you know, you're obsessed with Chris Angel Mind Freak. And it's like, when's he going to get into a sport? Boom, Peyton Manning, obsessed with Peyton Manning and, and Madden making rosters. We wouldn't even play the game. We just sit and make rosters because that's what we wanted yeah. to do. And then boom, you're playing football and you're a really good football player. You grow and now you're obsessed with basketball and you perfect like your jump shot. Like you were a sick shooter. If you didn't hurt your back, you could have been an unreal like university player. Who knows what happened, man? Because you get a like me. So it's, it is weird. Like every family has the little things we're going to continue to have them. And I don't think they ever really end, but we manage them better. And we'll, we'll get onto a side where we're like always going to have, okay, nothing's ever perfect, but like, no. we're going to be a lot more like compatible to like be around each yeah. other a long time because it can get a little dicey at times. But I just think us, we're on our little self exploration, right? And yeah. we all like this stuff for no, none of us of the three of us is like shunning this stuff. We love talking about it all together. You and mom are always bouncing things off each other. Me and mom. Yeah. So we have a lot in common and um, so I think just it's all about comes down to communication, right? Like yeah, when things don't go well, it's usually like I regret sometimes not talking to you as much growing up about dad and stuff, but you had honestly been like kind of okay with it in a way, whereas I was the one that was dealing with it harder. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. We and, communicated, and that, it could have been better. Yeah. And you know, I think a really good basis for communication, especially with people in your life, your family, the people that aren't going away, uh, to be on the same page in terms of always assuming positive intent. So when someone does something, you know, wrong to you and you care about them, you know, the first thing you want to do is, you know, give them, give them the benefit of the doubt. So one of the, <laughs> hey, I'm not, not, call, not calling any, not throwing shade anywhere here, but okay. uh, I'm kidding, but um Interestingly enough, you know, you mentioned not talking about dad enough. And I think part of the reason why I didn't, it wasn't because I was uncomfortable or, or was afraid, but I was so stuck in my own world of, again, whether repressed feelings or not, being pretty, for the most part, unperturbed, like just not overly, overly affected. And it was only till recently when, recently in the last year or two, you know, where I've had some experiences where I've really started to develop some more empathy. And it was actually, I think it was like, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago where I was, I was smoking some weed and I, I was by myself in my room and I was lying down. And then I just started breaking out crying. And it was about the dad situation, but it wasn't about my own pain. It was 
I'd never thought about, I'd never really gone deep into the fact that our, that mom, you know, our mom, she had her, her, her ex-spouse, the, the father of her children, uh, kill himself and having to not only go through that and the unbelievable torrent of emotion and experience that would be, but then not only to have that, but now you have to explain that to your children, why, why daddy's not going to be around anymore. And, that, and that's, that's not easy. And, you know, I think that was where something where I kind of got out of where I gained em empathy in the sense that just because something maybe not affecting me, it doesn't mean it's not affecting others. So mm -hmm. kind of just like getting outside of my own, own brain in, uh, in, in regards to that. Well, yeah, we did that Jordan Peterson personality test I've been telling a bunch of people about, and it just shows like you definitely aren't as, like you said, bothered by some things. And mm -hmm. me and my mom hasn't done it. We got to get her to do it, but we just were a lot more volatile. It would turn it like we, yeah. things affect us more and stuff. So yeah, it is interesting to put it that way. And, you know, I put it back the other way, put it back to you. It's like, I try to think about, you know, me and mom seem to be have a closer personality and then you're the you're like kind of out of left field with your personality and it's like well I start to feel like frick like maybe we are hard too hard on him sometimes and we let things bother us way too much and it's like I, I agree like finding that empathetic vein definitely changes your perspective and then talking to you about it and you know keep continually working on it give you chances to like redeem it and whatever and but it's really not that bad you've never done anything too bad but it's just like we just got to kind of meet in the middle and the other person's side of it because we both know we yeah. all want the, like the same thing yeah Be being willing to be uncomfortable is, is i think part of it and, and you know if things aren't going in in any topic if things aren't going the way you want and you're comfortable all the time then you're probably not changing the things that aren't making it good so it's like lean into the uncomfortability because that can pretend that can lead to an outcome in which you're not used to you know definition of ins insanity continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results and interesting, so kind of on a more broad, switching up on a bit more broad perspective here in terms of you mentioned, you know, letting things roll down my back. Uh, I was reading a book recently and it was talking about how uh, there was two monks walking, walking through a forest and there was uh, a, a batch of mud and there was a girl there who had a dress on and she couldn't cross it because the, the dress would get all muddy. So the one monk who's not supposed to help or do anything, supposed to be you know, on his own, he goes and he picks up the girl and he takes her across. And then they're walking along. And after five hours, the other monk couldn't hold himself any longer. He's like, you picked up that girl and, and brought her across. Why did you do that? You know, we're not supposed to do that. And the other monk said to him, that happened five hours ago. I put her down then. Are you still carrying it? <laughs> which is pretty interesting um there so i think i think that's a good point to kind of leave it off and kind of head to the to the final question um you know and this is kind of be the, the the recurring theme curtis if there's actually no i want one more here before you do that kind of wrap it up there what is what is the thing that you are most proud about in terms of your whole hockey career from from the point in which you said, this is what I'm going to do to, to now, what are you most proud about? Hmm. Um, interesting. I guess, uh, big question. What am I most proud about? Um, I don't know. Maybe that uh, put me on the spot on this one. I don't put that thought much thought into that. Um, I guess just never, whether I fell off the horse 
you know, and didn't things have gone poorly, like getting punched in the hallway and going viral, you know, getting like that's embarrassing. You know, I've had a whole bunch of embarrassing things happening and it's just me being passionate and stuff, I guess. I guess always getting back to it, uh, why getting back to why I play the game, why I love the game. Um, always just finding a way to bring it back, no matter how crappy it's gotten. Um, getting back up on the horse, knowing that, learning from the past that it's gotten bad, it's gotten terrible, but it's always going to pass and it's always going to get better. And um, still here trying to fight a way to make something of myself in this game. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, you're, you're too hard on yourself in terms of that. And you don't realize, you know, how incredible the things, you know, you've done. So with that being said, now last question, if there's one thing that someone that's still listening now, if, if there's one thing that you'd want them to take away from this conversation, whether, you know, we've already brought it up, or you'd like to say it now, if there's one thing you think someone should take away from all your life and this conversation, what would it be? Uh, I think that one's easy. I think that's communicating with your loved ones. Uh, and then I know some people don't have them, but friends, the hotline, whatever. I think the number one thing is talk about things that you're going through to not keep it inside. It doesn't make you cooler that you can handle it yourself. You're only gonna hurt yourself. So I think the number one thing to take away is always communicate always uh, tell people how you feel no matter how much it sucks it's always going to feel better after it's always going to help alleviate some things it's probably going to open you up to some conversations that are worth having that end up making your life a lot better in a lot of ways you didn't expect so um, no matter how scary it gets put everything out there and i really think it'll benefit you awesome thanks bro I uh, appreciate the conversation. I think it's, from my perspective anyway, again, it's safe to say, I think this was a conversation worth having. Love you, bro. Love you too, bro. Look forward to next time. Thanks.